Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities. Uh, Great to be with you on a Saturday night along with... David Schultz, one of my absolute favorite guests. How are you, sir, tonight? I'm doing well. I hope you got outside today. It was absolutely gorgeous. A little nippy, but still, I can't complain when you, you think about our friends in Arizona that are have been facing, what, 119? Exactly. And hoping to go down to 111? That's right. That's I'll, I'll right. take this any day. Yeah, we went strawberry picking today. It was absolutely beautiful to do it. Oh, gorgeous. Where'd you go? Um, there's a place up in White Bear Lake, and it's the first time we've been there, because the place we normally go in Scandia, when there's really bad storms blew through a couple of weeks oh, wow. ago, their entire strawberry crop got wiped out um, in the storm. Oh, no. Okay. I know. So, so we went to a different place, and it was just beautiful today. It was a, I mean, usually when I pick strawberries, it's hot, sticky, and buggy. It was gorgeous. Today. Uh, let me ask. I got to ask you. I can't believe you don't grow strawberries. You know, I used to grow strawberries. I mean, you you grow everything else in your little garden. It's amazing. We do. Um, we um, and we put more strawberries in this year, and we put them in early. But then we got kind of that cold snap, and it killed them off. Oh no! Okay. Yeah, so all right. So 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 instead we put, we have other stuff growing in there instead. I think we put a bunch of zucchini and muskmelons, and so we'll see what happens. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you have to keep us posted. Listen, before we get into it, once again, a ton to talk about. Um, you actually are going to be going out of the country, so this is the last time that we're going to be able to visit on a Saturday night until July twenty second. And I was telling you in the break there, I'm worried that will we all still be here on July twenty second? I mean, so much is happening so quickly; uh, it's remarkable. But uh, tell us about where you're going to be. Well, next week, of course, it's just going to be the North Shore. We're going to get away for a couple of days, but but we're going to come back. But then on July 7th, I'm going to fly to Beijing for two weeks, and I'll be teaching in Beijing. Um, it's called the, um, the University of International Business and Economics, and I'll be t- teaching a class, comparative class on public administration and public policy. Um, and then at the same time while I'm there, um, I actually just worked out the details a few days ago. Um, I'll be doing a talk for the State Department over there for the U.S. Embassy over in Beijing. And people who have been listening to us for years, you know, have probably, you know, have heard me talk about the fact that when I, you know, I, I, I do some sort of speaking and, and things for the U.S. State Department, our embassies when I travel abroad. So I'll have an opportunity to do that also. Well, and let me ask you, what, what kinds of things do you talk about with these embassies? Now, I believe that there actually is an ambassador to China, isn't there? There is, and I and I have to try to figure out who it is. I forgot at this right. point. Right, but 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 there because one of the issues here is that many of these ambassadorial posts have not been filled yet. But I, I'll, I'll look that up right now. But what kinds of things you know when you go talk to, uh, you know, go for the State Department? What kinds of things are, are they looking for? Are you talking to mostly the Chinese well, what or are U.S. We, citizens or? Well, what, I'll describe what, what what we have across the world that's attached to our U.S. embassies, and it's part of our cultural affairs office. Um, They're either called American Places or American Corners, and they're places where, let's say in in Beijing, for example, you can go to the American Place, and they have all kinds of information about the United States. Everything is in English, and so there are books, movies, information about the United States, um, um, a lot of information about, for example, if students want to think about maybe studying in the United States, where they can get information on that. 
but then they also have a, a speaker series where they try to bring speakers in to come and talk about, you know, who knows, almost any kind of topic it is. And so the topic um, that, that I'm going to be discussing um, is, 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 is going to be on what, the Constitution um, and presidential power. And partly why they want me to talk about it is that I'll be able to explain how presidents um, are actually limited. The United States are limited by the Constitution, you know, how Congress is supposed to be involved. You know, some of this is basic civics 101 that many of us grew up with, you know, learning in the United States. But that's what we're going to have me do. So what usually happens, or what will happen in this engagement, I will speak for about 40 minutes or so. Um, then there'll be about approximately about a 45-minute minute period where it's just questions and answers, and it could be about anything. I don't care what they're going to ask me. Um, and then afterwards, we'll just have some snacks, and then, I, and then after that, I talk to some journalists. Uh, but And talks I've done over the years, they've ranged anywhere from when I've been sent on assignments during presidential election years is to explain um, who the candidates are, um, what their, made, their, their different visions maybe of the world. Um, they may be talking about issues such as uh, federalism, for example, um, there's, there's a potential um, that I might be sent on another assignment at a future point to another country um, just to explain how U.S. federalism works, because this is a country that's thinking about you know, decentralizing its power. So it's a lot of topics of just explaining to journalists, to, to just average people over there, um, citizens, students, basic concepts about American politics and American law in a way that we try to, you know, we try to provide information to them that they'll find useful and interesting. And part of it, of course, I have to mention is the fact that, you know, this is part of the United States' effort to promote human rights and democracy around the world. So we're, we're trying to showcase our democracy, although sometimes, as we'll probably start to talk about in the next few minutes here, it's not always um, pretty, our democracy, but, uh, but, but nonetheless, um, that's the goal, to explain to the rest of the world you know, who we are. All right. And just looking up here, um, the, this is very interesting because you're going to be going into a very interesting situation here. I don't want to put you on the spot, but... Um, uh, Earlier this year, the acting U.S. ambassador to China, David Rank, actually resigned because of he was in a position where he was going to have to explain to the embassy and and the staff there and to the Chinese government about why the United States had withdrawn from the Paris Climate Accord. Mm -hmm. And so he resigned. Uh, The the, the, uh, individual who is uh, been uh, approved as the new U.S. ambassador, and I'm not sure if he's there yet, is former Iowa Governor Terry Branstad. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so my suspicion is what we had is that person was probably a careerist. Um, absolutely. He was a career Foreign Service person exactly. who had served both um, under, you know, President Bush and President Obama, and he resigned because he disagreed with that particular policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I have to think that when you do give these talks – um, given sort of you know the volatility of the Trump administration, I bet you're going to get a lot of questions. I suspect I'm going to. Um, I'll get a ton of them, and that to me is the most fun part when I've given these talks because I've done these in Ukraine, Russia, probably in about 12 or 13, 14 different countries around the world. The two things I'll mention is first off is that is that I am never um, censored 
or prevented from from saying whatever I want. You know, and it's consistent with you know with our you know our our values of the First Amendment and free speech. But there's no question that I am very sensitive. You know, in terms of of the kind of topics that I want to uh, discuss or or the issues that I want that I want to bring up. And so and so that's why it was it was literally I think it was Thursday night. It was Thursday night. I was I finalized the details. I was speaking to the uh, uh, the cultural affairs officer, the U.S. Embassy in, in Beijing, um, and we were on the phone for about a half hour trying to work out a topic that that I felt comfortable talking about. And at the same time, um, they thought they was, felt comfortable. They <laughs> felt comfortable because you know because one of the things I have to be honest about right now is exactly the, what you were getting at here is that there is a schism right now between. Um, the careerists, you know, the people who are the right. career civil servants versus um, the, the political appointees. And it's, to some extent, there always is, because a lot of our ambassadors are, are sort of um, political appointees, but the vast majority of them are careerists. And usually there isn't a tension between them, but there's no question that right now there's a tension between those careerists um, and the Trump administration and potentially some of the people who have been put in place by the um, uh, Trump administration. Now, the other thing I'll sort of throw in here is that the, uh, the United States – actually, I've more important I meant to say – um, Minnesota has a very, very long track record um, with China. I mean, people might remember in the days when it was Northwest Airlines before it became Delta. You know, Northwest was one of the first, might have been the first U.S. airline right. to, to be flying to, to China. Uh, and there's an, a, a very large um, contingent of Chinese students, you know, in the United States, especially in, I should, I should keep saying the United States, I meant to say Minnesota. So, so there is a very nice working relationship there, and that'll be kind of fun to sort of tap into right. that also. Yeah, and, and so many issues there. I mean, I, although it's, it is interesting because I've read reports that actually the number of foreigners, including from places like China, the Middle East, India, that are, you know, applying to U.S. schools is down. It's down dramatically. Dramatically. That's what's interesting. The school that I'm going to be at, it's the University of International Business and Economics, um, UIBE, um, is is a, the, the classes in the summer are in English, as are many of the classes during the regular year. And what they're trying to do is attract students from around the world to go to Beijing um, to attend. And in many ways, they're, they're starting to fill the void um, that's starting to be created as many international students feel um, less welcome in the United States. And in fact, it's getting harder to get into the United States as a student. Um, and instead... Well, I think people are reluctant, it They're reluctant like. also. Yeah. And so they're going elsewhere. And so this has been, a, for many, many years, again, the University of Minnesota especially, for example, um, um, has, has benefited tremendously from very, very, very many um, students from China coming. Um, and our economy in Minnesota nationwide has benefited from you know, what, literally hundreds of thousands of international students coming every year to the United States. They pay tuition. Um, um, you know, the international students who come to the University of Minnesota are paying out-of-state tuition, and so um, they're, they're paying prime dollar to come to the United States. All right, and again, the name of the university in China that you're going to be teaching it's at? University of International Business and Economics in Beijing, um, and um, I'll be there for two weeks. Wow, okay, well, I can't wait to talk to you once you get back. Right, because so it's... I'm going to be back. The, uh, assuming you're on July 22nd, I think, uh, unless you're on vacation. Um, I'm going to be here unless we have, like, perhaps some I'll, – I'll double-check, but I, I believe that we are on. Um, but a lot to talk – and also the whole issue with North, North Korea, too. Exactly. We were talking about that. I mean, that, the hotbed that you're going into. Exactly. And that's the part that I always like – also like about doing these trips is that I get to talk to people – 
um, and sort of get a different sense of what's going on in the world. And as, for example, what's happened since I've been to you know, Russia six times, I know lots of people over there. And so when I go over there, I, I can talk to people, you know, very candidly and find out what's really going on. And so I'm hoping to establish that also in China so that I can, I can have people who I can sort of get their perspective on the world and, and, share, and share observations. All right. Well, very interesting stuff. Listen, we do have to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, we want to tra- chat about some of the latest developments uh, with the president as well as uh, the developments with that lawsuit between Governor Mark Dayton and the Minnesota legislature. More with David Schultz after this. It's a Saturday evening, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. Let's kind of talk about some of the things that have been happening here. Uh, once again, uh, so much before we get into the health care law, uh, I, I do want to ask you about um, a couple of things quickly. First of all, I guess there are no tapes. No tapes that Trump recorded. And I say that because I'm He really- kind of left it open. He did, and that's the part. I don't know if you listened to his, his, the way he described it earlier in the week. He said, I did not tape record um, um, our, my conversations with Comey. And if you can parse words, and if you think that Trump uses his words carefully, and we could have a big debate on that whether or not, he, he basically said he didn't tape record, um, but didn't say that somebody else might not have tape recorded. And I mention this because... I was under the impression, and I've talked to a couple of my friends, you know, you know, who who work in Washington, um, and you know, fairly high level positions, and they were under the assumption too that there was automatic tape recording of just about everything that happened in the Oval Office. Now, maybe they're wrong, maybe it's not happening anymore, uh, but but I'm surprised there wasn't. But anyhow, Trump's comments, and tell me if you agree with it, made it sort of open. In terms I of- thought it was open, too, but the, everybody else seems to be interpreting it as there are no tapes. Yeah, and that's not how I interpret it. I interpreted it of him just simply saying, I didn't tape record, um, but left it as that. Well, I do think this is a master showman who loves playing everyone and keeping everyone guessing. Exactly. I mean, I, I think I think that is what he does very well, and... Yeah. Uh, but I, I agree with you. There was part of me thinking, is there something there or not? Yeah, because, again, I would be surprised if there wasn't. Simply, there weren't some tapes out there for either historical record or for the purposes of just making sure that people who work there um, um, have have conversations in case any disputes come up in terms of things. And so I'd be surprised. Okay, so the question is, why the showmanship? A couple of different theories here. Because he's a showman. He's a showman. <laughs> That's the first and obvious one. You know, this is, this is Harry Houdini, you know, pulling the rabbit out of the hat or using illusions. Second, perhaps maybe it was an effort to try to intimidate Comey, although I doubt that was, um, was going to be successful because he doesn't strike me as the kind that you're going to easily intimidate. Um, and who knows? Um, there, 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 there may be a fact that another hypothesis here is that there actually are tapes. He's denying that they are. there are tapes. Why? Because they don't support Trump's version of the events. And so I think there's lots of possibilities out there in terms of it. And I don't think we've heard the last of this issue. I think also, I should throw one other thing is, fourth, if in fact there are tapes out there, um, that means he would have to turn them over to Congress. And that's the last thing I think he wants to do. And so I think for a variety of reasons, it wasn't completely, completely unpredictable that he would eventually say there were no tapes, although I think you're right right off the bat. It's the showmanship and a diversion to get people to talk about something else and not Comey's testimony. 
All right. Well, obviously, um, stay tuned, folks. Um, certainly, you know, let's take. Um, why don't we take our break right now? Because we've got a pretty full low, load of spots. I do want to, you know, after the weather break, I do want to ask you about this loss, this congressional loss in Georgia, right. and also your thoughts on the health care law. Sure. I mean, there's uh, Republicans seem to be peeling away from this in the Senate, uh, sure. but get your take on that. And then, of course, the latest on the saga in of the governor versus the legislature. So let's take a quick break for weather. And when we come back, we'll have more with Professor David Schultz. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. All right, folks, 833 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, before we get to the Senate health care bill that is, as I said before, GOP senators seem to be peeling away from, uh, let's talk about that congressional loss in Georgia. Uh, this is a long-held Republican seat. It's been Republican since the 1980s, since the Carter administration. Uh, but Democrats really put up a fight because this was the seat that was vacated by Tom Price, uh, who is now the uh, Health and Human Services Secretary for the president. He's a doctor. He won double digits easily. Uh, this was a real fight, and what was it, $50 million was put in by both sides here? Yeah, this was the most expensive House of Representatives seat in American history. I mean, just a phenomenal amount of money. And the Democrats thought they had a chance. I think you were right. Tom Price won, I think, by about 30 points. I think it was like 65, 35 in the last election when he won. But Donald Trump only won that seat by one and a half points in terms of percentage over Secretary Clinton. And so the Democrats thought that this was a potential for a pickup, and they took a seat that I think they had probably no chance at winning. should have been a meaningless loss, and it actually became quite a devastating loss for them because they raised the stakes so much, they put so much money into it. And I thought that they framed the, the, the race wrong. They, they framed it as one that they said they could win. They ran and Ostoff ran mostly as a candidate who was arguing or making it a referendum, I should say, on Donald Trump. And instead, the Democrats uh, wound up losing, and, and it doesn't look good for them because what it really did was to point out the weaknesses of the strategy of simply running against Donald Trump without having your own narrative in terms of why you should be elected. So so they took a race that they probably had no chance to win, made it look like they had a chance to win, then lost it, and it gave Donald Trump a chance to what? Gloat. And I think uh, it, well, he certainly did. And I think that, um, you know, there were some, Repu- some Democrats who were publicly saying our brand is toxic. We've got yeah. a problem. Is, is, is it toxic? Is, it, is there a problem? And what is the solution? Does the, do the Democrats go further to the left? Well, that's a good question here, because I think one of the things that's become clear about the Democratic Party nationwide, and I've actually made this argument in Minnesota, too, and my DFL friends have gotten very, very mad at me when I say this, is when I say that the Democrats have an incredible, I'll put it in Minnesota, have an incredibly effective strategy that allows them to win um, re-election of seats in the state legislature in Minneapolis and St. Paul. 
And the reason why I mention that is that Democrats are going to win in Minneapolis and St. Paul no, no matter what. And across the country, the Democrats have a narrative that, plies, that, uh, that plays very well in, let's say, urban centers, among, among Democrats, among liberals. But where they're failing at this point is to reach out to the suburbs. We saw in the last election with, between Clinton and Trump, they're losing the working class. And so they seem to have a narrative that works and a strategy that works only in the areas where Democrats are going to probably win anyhow. And I think that's what happened here. In many ways, I described the loss this week as a rerun of the Clinton-Trump race from last year, where Clinton, to a large extent, ran on a narrative of, of being against Trump. The way I described it right. in a recent blog is to say Clinton's, Clinton's message was Trump's bad on the alternative. And in this congressional race, that was the message. Trump's bad were the alternative. And and that's not enough to get you a victory. And so the Democrats need Especially to- in an overwhelmingly, I think it was like a plus nine yes. Republican district. Exactly. Exactly. And so to think that somehow that in a plus nine district where, again, the previous House member had defied coattails by winning by 30 points, even though Trump wins by one and a half points, to somehow think that the relative unpopularity of Donald Trump was going to be enough to overcome, let's say, a 30-point deficit seemed to me foolish at the end of the day. And the idea of saying that just dump more money into it is going to be the solution didn't work. And in fact, I think what we're starting to see now is among some Democrats a, a mild uprising against against uh, Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi saying, we spent all this money, we've put all this effort in there, and we haven't won a special election yet this year. Right, right. And and her her famous line, which is a good one, is I'm worth the trouble. I think there's some Democrats wondering if she is worth the trouble right, right. <laughs> um, or, or if they have to need to make adjustments. And I, I will say, and I know I think you brought this up before, just and I want to throw this out there uh, real quickly, because you had told me that you had read the book Shattered. Mm-hmm. And I, I did just pick it up. And wow, I, I am not all the way through it. But it's good, though, isn't it? It is a remarkable, remarkable look at the Clinton campaign and the, the folks. It's a book about the Clinton campaign going through the primary and caucuses through the general election. I'm only like 100, and we all know how it ends. Right, right. But it is staggering in its insight and staggering in its portrayal of, uh, and the access they have is amazing, uh, staggering in portrayal of, of a campaign that was completely adrift and, and that just didn't get it. Right, and I think and one of the central messages of the book is the fact that, that much like in 2008 where Clinton ran and basically assumed she was the heir apparent, and it was hers. Her, it was her presidency because she deserved it. In part, 2016 was a rerun of that, and one of the criticisms was that the Clinton campaign simply did not have a narrative, a rationale, an explanation for why they should be pre- why she should be president of the United States, and with that, did not have a strategy that really really, I think, understood the dynamics of the election in 16, right. and the same in 08. And so it's, it's one of the two best books written about the election last year. The other one, actually, I read, it's actually autobiography, I read John Kasich's um, book about, his, about the 2016 campaign that he waged, and that's also worth reading, too. Really? Okay, because I actually interviewed him, and i not that impressed. It was just down the street here. I yeah. mean, he was... Difficult to say the least. Um, he's, a prick, he's a prickly person, but his his book 
has some interesting insights. I wouldn't right. say it's in the League of Shattered. Shattered I mean, Shattered is, is just it, – it's, and it's, it's very readable, folks. If you're looking for a book, I, I know it may sound like you know kind of a, a dull thing to read about the 26th campaign because, again, we all know how it turned out. But it just it, – it's remarkable. It's a remarkable book, I, I have to right. say. And I think in some ways that book foreshadowed what happened in this election, in the special election here, and, and, and shows that the Democrats – hadn't learned very much from 2016, which does not bode well for them in 2018, because I think what the Democrats are counting on right now are two things. One, that for a first-term president, generally his party loses members, loses seats in the House in that midterm election. And two, I think they're hoping that Trump's unpopularity becomes a springboard for the Democrats. And if that's the strategy of simply saying that we're going to rely on historical trends in, in terms of a victory, that is not the kind of bet that I would want to make. All right. Well, listen, um, uh, interesting stuff. But uh, again, I think we both agree that is a great book. Let me ask you about this Republican Senate health care bill. Right now, it doesn't look like this is going to pass. It doesn't. Right now, we have um, five Republicans who said they're not going to support it. And the Republicans could only count, could only afford two defections because um, they have a 52-48 in the Senate. If two leave and vote against it, it's 50-50. Mike Pence gets to get gets to work as Vice President of the United States and cast a tie-breaking vote. Now, what I find fascinating here in terms of the Republicans who are bolting is you have two, for example, Ted Cruz and Rand Paul who in many ways are saying that the bill doesn't go far enough in terms of dismantling Obamacare and getting the feds out of health care. And then you have some others, for example, I'm forgetting his name now, who is the senator from, I think it's, is it, is it, is it Nevada, I think it is? Right, who, who just announced his defection. That's right. And he's, he's in a very, very tight race um, going into 2018, much more of a centrist Republican. And the reason why I mention this is because of the, of the five different people are really in very different places on the ideological spectrum. If you can, if you appease Cruz and Paul, you're probably going to alienate somebody at the more centrist direction. And so this is going to be interesting to see how Mitch McConnell puts it together. And then there, I think there was an article in tonight's New York Times or the Washington Post, I can't remember, where Donald Trump is going to leave this up to Mitch McConnell in terms of pushing it through, and Trump isn't going to be doing any strong-arming or phone-calling, and that either may be good or that may be bad. I don't know at this point. Well, it, it, we, it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I don't see how, um, and I can understand why some Republicans are balking, how they can support – I mean to support a bill that obviously is going to increase – costs for seniors dramatically mm-hmm. is one, one of the, the big things. I mean, it's like, how is that politically tenable? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, seniors tend to vote, you know, seniors vote. They do. And many of them vote Republican. They do. Um, in fact, seniors become a core constituency of the Republican Party in the last few years. And so, so I think you're absolutely correct on this one. Plus, it's And the Planned Parenthood issue is also, you know, a lot of apparently the senators are struggling over this. Even if they oppose abortion, what they're struggling with is that some of these clinics, including many that are located here in our listening area, Planned Parenthood clinics, in, especially in rural areas, are the only health care providers right. for basic health services. 
And, and most of them do not provide abortion services. So I think that's an, another problem that we're, I'm hearing about. So you're absolutely correct. In fact, people don't realize that, is that the federal funding that does go to Planned Parenthood, none of that money goes to provide um, abortion services. They go for women's health care services. And as you correctly point out, across the state of Minnesota, just alone, um, in many situations, that's the only place for women to go for, for you know, any basic health care needs, yeah. any kind of health care needs. And so we have that. And then I think we also have some concerns um, among the um, um, about some of the changes in terms of, you know, Medicaid that are being proposed here. And then locally, you know, since we're a very big, you know, biomedical area in Minnesota, um, some concerns coming out of the Minnesota community, you know, in terms of, I'm not sure if Medtronics has specifically spoken on this, but but a lot of the companies here are very worried in terms of how it affects um, our um, um, uh, basically some of our, our our best industries, best companies in Minnesota, and so I think this is going to be really kind of interesting in terms of how it plays out. Now now, if it gets defeated, and it's, the vote's supposed to occur, I think before Fourth of July. If it gets defeated, does that mean um, this is actually dead? Uh, never say never on it. Well, I mean, even if they pass it, it's got to go to a conference committee. It's got to go to a conference committee. Yeah, so there's enormous differences. And just for example, the differences in terms of how the House of Representatives, for example, actually does provide um, you know more money for people who are what's the scale now? The scale for them is based upon age in terms of subsidies. The Senate is going to be subsidies scaled on the basis of, of um, I think it's income or something. That's very very big differences in terms. Of, of of working policy out, and so I think even if it does pass the Senate, and that's a difficult one at this point, there are still enormous hurdles. And if somehow Trump does get this, some does pass, it is going to be his first piece of leg, first legislative victory, and he'll have been in office what six to seven months. Right, with with a Republican House and Senate. Exactly, right. exactly. Um, and to, and for this to be your first legislative victory, um, and to have to fight that hard, that's not a good sign. And he still needs to do what? He still wants to do things such as infrastructure, he tax wants reform, to do tax reform, and he has. To, and we still have to do a budget. All right. Uh, all right, folks, we are going to take a quick break. I do want to let you know that our WCCO time check is eight forty six. Certified Cadillacs on sale up to 40% off the original MSRP. Check out McCarthyAuto.com today. It's 8.51 in the Twin Cities, 63 degrees, chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. All right, so what the heck is going on with the legislature and the governor? They're suing each other, but now I guess the governor has agreed to keep funding the legislature for at least three months, right? right. We have a court hearing on... Monday morning at 10 a.m. I'm in Ramsey County District Court, and I'll just mention it's before the Chief Judge John Guthman, who I actually know. And if there's anybody I ever would want to have a case before regarding this type of a matter, it would be him. He's an outstanding judge, and so it's, he's, he's going to be very, very good in terms of it. But what was announced last night, and by the way, for, just for context here, people forgot here, is that the, the governor um, at the at the end of the special session, um, did a line item veto and vetoed out the appropriations um, for the legislature um, to to basically do anything. To basically, t- total um, line item veto for the budget starting on July 1st, the new budget year. And the legislature responded by suing the governor, claiming that he was violating the state separation of powers clause. This case is now going to be in Ramsey County District Court on on Monday morning at 10 a.m. 
and neither side looked like they were budging. And late last night, I think it was around 10 o'clock or so, um, the governor and the led, the two attorneys, the one representing the governor, Sam Hansen, uh, and then the Doug Kelly representing the um, the Republicans, and actually the legislature, announced an agreement where they're going to ask for the judge on Monday um, to or um, to order um, that the there be funding for three more months beyond July 1st for the legislature, and this sort of sounds like the beginning, in my in my estimation, of a working out of a deal at this point. And you know, so, so they are going to keep it going uh, for, for three months. And one one of the problems they were looking at, which I, I don't think politically would have worked for the governor at all, is that uh, as I understand it, the legislators would have continued to get salaries, but all of the staff that work for them would not have. And so they would have been out of work. Correct. And, and, and that's, I mean, you, you know, you just can't have people not knowing where their paycheck is coming from. Right. This is as bad as when the government shutdown came a few, last time we had one, where the legislature still was getting paid, governor was getting paid, um, and staffs were getting laid off, and lots of people were getting laid off. And it seemed to me, as I think to many Minnesotans, if the governor and the legislature are disagreeing, why should third parties pay, as, pay, pay with their paychecks as a result of this? And so here it looks like they're going to continue to be paid, and th- th- everybody in the legislature. What I think is going to happen at this point, I'm sort of speculating, on, on Monday, since they've reached that agreement, we're not going to see the high drama that I thought we were going to see this coming Monday. Instead, it might turn out to be a relatively quick hearing where they've announced that they've reached this kind of deal for the next three months. Um, and it may very well be at that point that the judge either says at that point he's going to do a continuance and have him, have him come back in like in a month or two, but, um, or, or the parties might ask for that. But I think what the courts don't want to do if they have to is actually decide this case. And I think they're hoping that the legislature and the governor will come to their senses and work out something. And that is sort of the sense that I think we're going to see, too, which means if they do work out a deal, that's going to mean what? Another special session, because they're going to have to formally come in um, and allow for for either the legislature to come in to override the governor's veto, or they're going to have to agree to a special bill just to fund the legislature or some possibility. But I think we're going to see one more special session coming up in the next couple of months. And, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, I, I'm not sure how much the general public is tuned into this because it's it's pretty complicated. They're not facing, you know, the shutdown. Right. And, I, you know, although the cost is going to be borne by the taxpayers. Exactly. Yeah. Pat, you know, Pat Kessler and I, I think we did a story earlier. It was very week. good. Yes. It was a great, Pat did a great job on this. And, and we started talking about how the public is bearing all the costs of this litigation. And so, so if, in fact, I think part of this is personal because it's clear that the governor and the speaker don't like one another. Um, part of this is that we're asking taxpayers to subsidize some, some sort of personal but yet political, um, I'd say, vendettas. And um, that'll be interesting. Another thing, though, that happens real quick, and um, it's got a couple more minutes, is one of the things that I think people will pay attention to as they go about this holiday weekend that is uh, – or holiday week that is uh, pretty uh, fast approaching is that uh, you're going to be able to buy beer or wine or spirits on Sunday. 
That's right. I think it's that's, that's, that starts the first. It starts the first. I think it's the second. I believe okay, is the second second of July. They'll be able to buy it anywhere um, that has a liquor license, except for Certix, of course. Uh, right, <laughs> Certix. <laughs> Certix was jumped the, the gun a little bit, so they're getting punished. Yeah, I can't remember what Certix's final punishment. I, was. I think I think it was a few weeks. It was yeah. back and forth, but if for a few weeks they they are being punished. Eventually, we you will be able to go to Certix. I love Certix; it's a great store, but it's a wonderful place. Not not the brightest move there, but that's, um, right. that's right. Anyway, but, but, uh, but that will be significant because. I think that'll be the first time, I think, in Minnesota history uh, if, that there's going to be Sunday liquor sales. Amazing. All right. Well, uh, and obviously, uh, this House Speaker, Kurt Dowd, uh he's claiming credit for that. So, um, And he's expected to jump into the governor's race here pretty soon. Well, listen, David Schultz, uh, great talking with you as always. Thank you so much. And listen, uh, probably talk to you before you leave, but um, – for our listeners, he is going to China for a couple of weeks. He's going to be out of the pocket until late July. But we'll be back on the air uh, July 22nd with Dave Schultz. And uh, have a safe trip. I will. And I might see some of you on TV. But either you or Pat interviewing me in the next two weeks. So. Absolutely. All right. Good. Thank you so much, David. Bye. All right, folks. I do want to send a big shout out to the producer of this show, Susan Blanche, and also to the wonderful Jonathan Lowe and Kevin Reed, our studio coordinators. Please tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning. Uh, one of my guests, live guests at the 10.30 a.m. show, Congressman Tom Emmer. Uh, he's going to talk about the Republican health care bill as well as his concerns about the president's Cuba policy. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.